You don't sound autistic. Well, uh, what does an autistic person Wait. sound like? You're autistic? Yeah, I'm telling you that. You don't even look autistic. But, but we're talking about... Yeah, but, but I don't buy it. But I, I was diagnosed with autism and ADHD and anxiety and depression. You don't sound autistic. Welcome back to another episode of You Don't Sound Autistic. I'm Blake. I'm Rochelle. And I'm autistic. And I'm not. We'd like to remind everyone to subscribe to the podcast on your preferred platform so you can be notified notified of the newest episodes when they're released. Also, be sure to join the Facebook group. Join the group. Join the conversation. That's You Don't Sound Autistic, YDSA on Facebook. We also like to welcome listeners from all over the United States and all over the world and all the new people that have joined the Facebook group. Welcome. And also, uh, we have a website now, which is YouDon'tSoundAutistic.com. You can check out the website for episode show notes, links to reference materials in the shop, and so forth. And for our new listeners, here's Rochelle's spiel. You Don't Sound Autistic is a mental and emotional health awareness podcast. Each week, we do our best to represent both neuroperspectives and talk about the continual discovery process of life on the spectrum. Our goal is to illuminate, uncover, and transparently discuss life with multi-diagnosis through a multi-generational neurodivergent lens. We follow an open, unscripted, conversational format that represents the real-life back-and-forth of communication and collaboration. Even if you aren't raising the next generation, you'll find the comparison of the age groups helpful in seeing the more hidden patterns in the DNA of your lifestyle and lineage. Sweet. That about covers it. Yeah. So what's been going on since two days ago? (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Happy Labor Day. It is Labor Day today. Yes. Woo. We're doing some labor. I I am, at least. <laughs> You're in labor? No, I'm work. Labor means work. Oh. Well, this is work to a degree, right? Well, I think most of the work we do We're is putting in work before we sit down, but yeah. I'm just in a in a cleaning mood. I'm just, you know, in one of those places where I'm ready for things to shift, so I'm cleaning and consolidating and fixing and you My know. place apparently got so dirty that Rochelle came over to clean. I did. Well, yes. I and did. reorganized, which I love when things get reorganized and moved around. I have to say, you handled and yes, it. Yes, I'm being sarcastic. No, I we've talked, you know, but you handled it very well. I think mostly because I was reorganizing all of Declan's stuff. But I put all that stuff where it goes so that I know where it is. And I kept it to that same format. He's the one that flipped your books and your games around sneaky devil (laughs) but um he asked if i could fix the playroom because he wanted to play with you and the spaceship tent was in was on the play mat and so i was like okay well in order to fix that i've got to you know change my apartment around to uh, to what's it called absorb the tent over here but anyways i think your place looks great he sat down immediately on the car mat and started playing um, and lining everything up, which I haven't seen him do in a long time. He likes that mat better than he likes this mat over here. So. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, well, we should, people don't know what the car mat is. It's just a toy mat with, with like roads on it. Yeah, like a city, like an imprint of a city. Yeah. When you say car mat, to me, it sounds like he's sitting in the garage. Oh, well, fair point. Yeah, I'm just, you know, in reference to a almost four-year-old. Can you believe that? Of 
course I can. Oh, I can't. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm enjoying every minute of trying to say that he's a three-year-old. You can still say he's a three-year-old even after he turns four if it makes you feel any better. But then I won't be accurate. Yeah. I mean, he's, I don't know. He's aging at the appropriate rate. Yeah, I know. Just breaking my heart. <laughs> he needs to go slower. Well, so um, I thought that I'm still thinking about some of the things you mentioned in last week's or last our last episode. So I just wanted to take an opportunity to thank you again for compiling those thoughts and bringing them forward. I don't remember what we talked about, <laughs> but apparently I did a good job. Yay me. Yeah. You were talking about your conversational difficulties and oh yeah, of course, you know, whether or not you think um, that your autism is always the reason why you don't feel like you connect in those in you know social situations and I, and I definitely you know socio emotional reciprocity is is a struggle it's one of the diagnostic benchmarks but i guess i just wanted to revisit because you felt so good in the interview and then now you're second guessing it do you are you cognizant of the process you're going through like how did that moment go from feeling good to now you're questioning it and feeling bad. Because it's been weeks since I heard anything, and they told me in the interview that it was a good interview. So in the silence, it's making you question that you missed details? It's making me feel like I didn't do a good job in the interview and that I was wrong. Otherwise, why wouldn't they have called me? But that's assuming that they absolutely did what they said they were going to do, and that they just They should do that, damn it. I agree, but... Have you ever been in a situation where unforeseen things happen and there's consequences? And nope. Everything's always perfect. Oh. Everyone always follows through? Yes. Okay. Not an ounce of sarcasm in that statement. No, not at all. <laughs> um, I think the point I wanted to come back to was if you're feeling good about it at the time, is feeling good about it conditional to you getting the job or can you just feel good about having that interview and that conversation regardless of whether you get the job or not nope i need to get the job so you added a condition to it the world added a condition to it but if you're i didn't add i i I didn't choose to add a condition to it that's the point of a job interview agreed but i've been in situations myself where i know unforeseen things happen and we ended up interrupting a a hiring you know process and and it went weeks without us getting back to someone so I just believe that there's a possibility that something that you're not aware of factored in and so instead of making space for something other than I failed and I did something bad you're going straight to it so I'm just I'm just trying to highlight the condition that in order for you to feel good about the conversation which based on the last episode, can kind of be separated into two things. Did you do well in the interview? Was the interview enough to get the job? Are two separate things. Well, it's like dating. When you go out on a date, right? Mm -hmm. If it doesn't go anywhere, it's just kind of like, what a waste of time that was. But so much so now, especially in the last two years after we've been um, forced to really look at our values and how we spend our time and energy... There's more consideration for, you know, is this your best, is this the best thing for you? So in the past, 
you know, it was really easy to just kind of take the first thing that comes along, whether it was really good for you or not. And this might have been one of those paths. But now there's a there's an an increased awareness to, you know, kind of search for the pathway that really is in your best and highest good. Now, we really wanted you to get this job. We really liked this job. We were willing to move for this job. Is this job really your best path? Like if we're looking at four or five different options, is this yes, one the it best? Yes, it was. Damn it. It was my best path. But do you know that? Do you know all the other paths yet? Yeah, because I know what the other paths you knew are, what you, that you, are presented to me as of right now. But you knew what you knew, right? Yeah, now I have nothing. Well- I have nothing! Okay. You're, you're looking at this in a very black and white- you know, as if you're kind of assuming that you know all the information. And that's the point I'm trying to get to is you don't know all the information. Now, your your mind, we know, goes right back into a fight or flight mode where you assume the worst. And so I'm just saying you might not know all the information and it might not be productive to assume the worst. Well, then I got the job. <laughs> Who knows? I'm just saying we're in limbo, which is a horrible place to be. I'm not. So if it's six months from now and I still haven't heard anything, are you still going to say I'm in limbo? No, not in six months. No. How much time do I have to wait before you agree with me? I didn't do well in the interview. Okay. That's the point I'm trying to say, though. You might have had a good interview. You might have done very well at representing yourself, but this isn't a situation where you were the only candidate for the position. So doing well enough to get the job and having a good conversation are two separate things because the conditions of the job may have changed. They might have had other people that were, you know, differently qualified. Like, be careful when you're attaching those two conditions to something because inadvertently you're attaching an outcome that is now degrading the quality of a social situation you had that potentially went very well. Okay. So for someone that... I disagree. Okay, but that's conditional. The fact that I disagree is conditional? No, I'm sorry. The reason you disagree is conditional because you wanted the interview to result in getting a job. So the interview only went well if you got the job. The interview can go well and you can still not get the job. You can go on a great date and you still might not want to be with that person. Yeah, not really. I've never been on a great date and been like, meh. Well, do you throw strikes every time you, you bowl? I'm not a very good bowler. It's not a very good analogy. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just saying there's processes to things. So try to separate out the two because more than likely your experience in the interview was more positive than you're giving it credit for. Whether or not it resulted in the action you wanted is a different thing. That's the next step. You can't link the two steps if together. If I sit down on the toilet. Okay. That's different. <laughs> I know where you're going. There's an expectation. Yes. The, oh, okay. So actually there it is right there. That's the key word. You have an expectation. Yeah, that's the point of a job interview. I know that. But you also have to leave in job interviews where there's mostly unknown information attaching how well you did in a social interaction to an expectation is where you're actually creating anxiety and depression for yourself. Well, that's the wrong word. You're exacerbating your own anxiety and depression. I just I am want not exacerbating right now. Really? Because the connection you just made, does that make you more calm? I'm fully clothed. <laughs> 
Does it bring you more peace? Does this thought process calm your system and give you yeah, something? Yeah, because then I have closure and I can walk away from it. Okay. I okay. You don't want me to have closure. Why? Look, hey, you are speaking to the queen of closure issues. Like when I was 16 years old, my father sat me down and he goes, you have closure issues. You have trouble being patient. You want immediate results. You are going to have to work on that if you expect to get anywhere in life because that's not going to work for you. And I was like, no, dad, I can do it. I need to push through. I need my answers. I can't, I can't live in, li- I can't, I can't I need to know. I <laughs> was like, sweetheart, that's not going to work. And it has been a struggle my whole life. It's the only reason I can identify it in other people is because I have actively had to confront. I have some serious closure issues also. I get it. It's uncomfortable. But it doesn't mean that your social interaction or your performance in that interview was bad. There's other considerations. That's your opinion. Okay. Well, if you're, that's a doomsday attitude. Like, no, it's not. It's a realist attitude. All right. Well, there goes my optimism for you. Thank you. Okay. What's next? Is it that you felt like you were... Oh, we're still talking about this? Like they didn't like you? Or you didn't (sighs) represent yourself? I didn't get the job. They never heard back. That's the part that's disappointing. Yes, I agree. It's disappointing we haven't heard. They could have at least said like, hey, no. I know, but the fact that we haven't heard no yet... Is what keeps me in a place where we don't know what happened. Okay, so like I said, six months from now, you're going to still have that same thought? I said, I don't... What's the timeline for when it's like, okay, it's a no? Three months. Three months? Where are we at right now in time? Two months? One month? Over a month. Well, then we'll make it the end of two months. Okay. And then you'll agree with me? And then I'll agree with you. All right. That'll be a first. Here comes somebody. Hello. Oh, he's going in his tent. Cool. Okay. All right. Um, something I am. Is that the right word? I gotta look it up now. <laughs> no. Say something, Rochelle, so it's not just dead air. Sorry. Um, I was just looking at him playing in his tent. Why? Go ahead. Sorry, I was talking. I'm talking. I was talking to Declan. Yeah, no one. You're killing the show here. I'm trying to look something up. Sorry. Well, you know, I I do have things. I was. uh, Did you listen to the podcast that Bill posted in the Facebook group yet? He posted it today. It was. It's a clinician. Um. Uh. I think he said it was a psychiatrist. That's not the right title, but. I started listening to her podcast per Bill's suggestion, and I, I, I love it. It's incredible. But listen to our podcast first. Well, yes, it's all collaborative. All right. I, I looked up the word I thought I knew. All right, go for I it. And I was wrong. Oh. I just, I, I'm hesitating is probably a better word anyway. What's wrong? To say, well, because it's, anyway, I, a, f- a friend posted on social media about being diagnosed with autism and ADHD. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You, you know who this person is. I do? Yes. Are my friends with them? I don't know. Maybe. They went to our wedding. Well, then, yeah, I'm friends with everyone we invited. Okay. But I'm not going to mention who it is. Obviously. Oh. 
Not, okay. on the, not on the show. I'll tell you off, offline. No, no, yeah. I believe in privacy. That's okay. So cool. So tell me what's what's going on. No, I mean, I can't really go into too much detail without giving away who it is, but it was just another thing. I was just like, they were like, oh, I was diagnosed with ADHD and autism. And they basically had written uh, an open letter to family. Oh. Is this a very quiet, gentle soul that we know? Sure. I might okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. That's that makes a lot of sense. And it makes sense that this person's autistic and has ADHD. Mm-hmm. Okay. I've been wondering for a while. Um, I'm surprised this person didn't mention depression. I I didn't read the in- it was a very lengthy post. I read a good chunk of it and then I was oh I'll preoccupied. go read it. No, if it's lengthy, I'll go get into it. I, I, I mean, it's not like I, I wasn't like, oh, it was too long for me to read. It was more just like I was reading it and I was like, whoa, just the beginning of it. I was like, oh, OK, so that makes sense. And then yeah. it was just like a lot of other stuff that I just I ended up. My brother called me and was like, hey, let's jump on this game. So right. I, was, I did that. Well, instead. he's a very I get easily distracted. Yeah, you do. Well, I, I hope he we've shared the show with him, I thought. Oh, maybe. I don't know. We'll, re- we'll reach out. But I said they and you said he you're giving it away. Okay, there's a 75% chance it's a he. I'm just playing statistical odds. Why is that? Because that's still the rate th- of diagnostic um, gender splits. Well, women are... S- so I've been doing... Uh, I've been looking into the amount of women getting diagnosed. And, you know, really it comes down to the expertise of the clinician because the criteria for diagnosing autism correctly all is already a very complex process. And it's one of the things that uh, most clinicians that are tackling autism are struggling to get right. And in a lot, in a lot of cases, I think that there are a huge amount of women that have been misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed because so many of the nuances of autism, like for example, Picky eating can be uh, misdiagnosed as like an eating disorder, which is common for women. Um, we There's um, emotional regulation and mood, which could be misdiagnosed as, you know, just hormonal a challenges. Mood disorder. Yeah. And so this podcast that I was listening to today, but and I have to, I'll post it in the show notes because I can't remember the name of it. But she was basically describing how e- unfortunately easy it is for clinicians to miss autism because autism is such a complex diagnosis and it has so many bits and pieces of it. And if the clinician only sees one bits and one bit and piece and it rec and recognizes that bit as like its own small diagnosis, like OCD, for example, or, you know, like a panic disorder or things, then they'll, they'll tell the person, Oh, you have OCD because you have rigid, rigid routine, you know, behavior and you get stuck and right because the autism the way she's describing it it requires you to have what's called a differential diagnosis have you ever heard of this no okay me neither but a differential diagnosis is the process of gathering an extensive amount of information and looking at all the different pieces to try and gain the biggest picture possible and knowingly going into an evaluation by saying, okay, well, I've got sleep disorder here. I've got mood regulation. I've got picky eating, you know, 
before you just grab those three things and grab the closest diagnosis that fits it in a differential diagnosis process, you look at those three things and go, well, let's keep adding, let's keep asking more questions because we need to be able to differentiate between several different diagnostic options that all have these things in common. And by the process of differentiating out the sections through the evaluation, then you get a chance to see the whole big picture and know if you're actually dealing with autism or if it's accurate to diagnose a smaller condition. And I don't mean smaller like they're easier by any means, but there's just so many aspects to autism that it gets misdiagnosed often. You see what I'm saying? Like, You lost me because the kiddo is going a little bit crazy in the background. Hold on. I'm trying to... Let me answer the question. Just Jesus. Now everyone gets to know Rochelle's true colors. Cranky pants. Slamming down microphones. Put your titties away. (laughs) (laughs) You bastard. That's not what's happening. I know how easily distractible you are. I'm just trying to... Don't get mad at me then. I'm not mad at you. He's over there high yawing, and you're talking kumbaya. Yeah, I knew. I could see it in your eyes. Someone else on the Facebook group, I, was it was it the same person that said something about um, star charts or something like that? Damn it. I can't remember. I don't have my phone, so I can't tell. Um, star but, charts. But, but instead, but like the, you know, the spectrum of autism not necessarily being like, a, you know, like it's not a uh, a rainbow or something, you know, or like, a you know. Like a line, it's not like a straight line or a curved line. No, it's the it's like a gradient. It's more like it's like a circle. No, but it's what they were saying is that it's more just like it, it's like a scatter shot spectrum. Like it's so many people can be on the spectrum and have all these different abilities and or quote unquote disabilities. Declan, Declan, dude, stop, please. You're killing me. We love you, but you gotta be. A little bit less with the throwing. He's just chucking toys around the apartment trying to get our attention, I think. Well, he's actually trying to land them in the sink over the countertop. Oh, right on. Don't do that. (laughs) Trying to discourage bad behavior. We're supposed to encourage the behavior we want and ignore the behavior we don't want. Yeah, but when he's throwing fireballs across the room. All right, we will be back. And you won't even know that we were gone. (laughs) <laughs> take it away Rochelle <laughs> thank you um, just to recap we were talking about differential diagnosis which is actually what happened to you back in 2017 when you were only diagnosed for your ADHD because the clinician recognized ADHD in you and didn't account for the fact that executive function challenges are also a part of autism or executive function challenges can be a part of several other diagnosis, um, diagnoses. I know I saw your eyes. (laughs) There she goes. And so instead of, of a more accurate and lengthy process to ensure the correct diagnosis, he just saw what he recognized and, and then he was like, that's it. Here you go. Here's your official ADHD card. Right, and so that's an example of the of what you don't want. So it's to the point where, like, I'm gonna, I'm, I'll dive into more of this on the show notes, but it's to the point where I almost wonder if you could call when you're calling around and deciding where to 
to select, you know, your diagnostic psychiatrist, if you can ask, do you have a differential diagnostic process? And then the counter to that would be um, how well prepared you can come to that evaluation so that you can best represent all the different things that you're experiencing to give the clinician the best chance to see the big picture without just narrowing in on the few things that you know about, you know, and so maybe that's a deeper exploratory process and something, um, you know, that... Isn't that what we did when I got the official autism diagnosis, though? Well, it not every clinician uses two separate... Eval- you actually had three evaluators on that. Right. So everyone's process is different. It's not It's not standardized at this point. So I think the reason why we were able to get a more accurate diagnosis for you is because um, our couples counselor had given us some insight that she suspected autism and it allowed us to do our research so we could go in and really tell as much of a story. You know, like we could represent as much of you as possible. We weren't zeroed in on one thing. We were... She opened our eyes to try and look at everything. Sleep, emotional processing, social, um, conversational, communication, digestion, immune system. And we're back again. <laughs> we are attempting the... Uh, we are. We know when we take on a recording um, during his waking hours, we're... My waking hours? Declan's. Yeah, I know. I was being sarcastic. <laughs> I hope you're awake for these. I try to be. Sometimes you make me a little sleepy. Okay, thanks for blaming me. I, uh, when did I say blame? I you said, said I make well, you Well, it's because your voice is so soothing. Oh, nice recovery. You're like a shot of NyQuil right to my earlobes. <laughs> oh, is that true? Do other people like fall asleep to our podcast? I don't know. Hopefully not. I mean, I I know there are speakers that I follow that I can fall asleep to that because it's a voice that I've come to know. Um, you know, I always have to go back and listen to it again. But if I'm having trouble sleeping, I can put on a familiar voice and then be asleep in five minutes. Oh, so. well, must be why we have so many listeners. Everyone's using us like Ambien. <laughs> it's it's easier on this on, on the nervous system. What is us versus Ambien? Oh. I took an Ambien one time. It was a big mistake. Yeah, that's what my mom said when she took it. I was sitting down watching TV, and I was like, okay, because my mom's like, take the Ambien, and then you want to go right to bed. Okay. So I took the Ambien, and I watched a little TV first, and then I stood up to brush my teeth. Uh-oh. And I was like, what the fuck? What happened? And so I brushed my teeth, and then I was like loopy as hell, and I came to lay down, I turned the lights off, and I like... I have this weird reoccurring thing that used to happen where I would lay down and I would lay down and close my eyes and all of a sudden I'd just see the backs of people's heads and then all at once the faces would all turn toward me. That's creepy. To look at me. Yeah. And then they would like start walking toward me like zombies. Okay. And like I'd hear, I was hearing voices and stuff. So you had like a dream hallucination kind of thing? No, I was awake. I mean, I was like, I'm saying I just literally closed my eyes and I would see faces. Okay. Yeah, that's trippy. Yeah, it was not fun. Well, you know, considering now what we know about how ADHD 
genetics will, I don't know if I'm saying that right, but, you know, a, a ADHD neurology will have oftentimes have an opposite effect on the nervous system. So who knows? <laughs> like Ambien's supposed to make you sleep and instead it sends you into, you know, some sort of trip. Hallucinogenic state. Yeah, the opposite. Yeah. Just maybe that's what the dreaming is supposed to be. It just forgot to put you to sleep. Maybe. It wasn't fun. Oh. So I was like, well, I guess I'll never try that again. My mom was taking it for sleep issues. My mom has chronic sleep issues. She never she hadn't been able to sleep in I don't even know how many years now, decades probably. And she was like a walking zombie. I don't even know how she drove and how she st- stayed out of car accidents. She couldn't remember kids' names or anything and finally she's like, "I got to stop taking this." And it was dangerous. Like it just the numbing effect and I'm positive there's an ADHD neurology in there as well. So, yeah, it didn't actually put her to sleep, but no. No. Make sure we're actually recording. That'll be fun. Yep, we're recording good. Okay, good. Because I keep having to stop and start. Well, you know what? Actually, that's an interesting... um, So, sleep issues, as we talked before, are something that affects 70 to 80 million Americans only. I'd love to see a global number. And um, most Americans do not get help. And it's one of the least... Um, asked questions by clinicians and so when you do go in for sleep issues I'm wondering now how often a deferential diagnostic process is followed you know because when you look at how common sleep issues are with mental health and I saw an, I can't remember if it was Psychology Today or USA Today or somewhere I saw to, uh, an article pop up about how they're linking uh which is no surprise, obviously, and it won't be a surprise to our listeners, but they're linking um, sleep issues to mental health issues. And it's like, well, duh, because you're in chronic fight or flight, you're not going to sleep. So I'm confident and hopeful at the same time that they are going to start linking some of these things together and eventually link sleep issues to chronic fight or flight. But when they're handing out ambience, I doubt they're going through a differential diagnostic process to, to ask questions that would even begin to screen for neurodivergent uh, brain chemistry and the impacts that that could have. So like, oh, here's some sleep medication. Don't drive a car. (laughs) The effects of those medications can last way beyond sleep hours. Well, yeah, it's like any drug. And with autism, we already know there's a, a heightened brain chemistry sensitivity and those medications were not made to be considerate to a uh, sensitive brain chemistry. Yeah, but I think people, like my mom even said, like when, because she's the one that gave it to me. That's right. My mom sold me drugs. Um, <laughs> actually, she just gave them to me, so maybe that's okay. She's like, take half of one. So I did. Okay. I took just half of one, and it still messed me up. I bet. I mean, certain, certain drugs just don't do, I mean, we watched me on quote-unquote nerve pain and land me with a three-day migraine and actual anxiety so I mean it's just a it's chemical I wish there was a better way now I mean I go back and mention what Mark had brought up about gene sight and he did come back and um I wanted to thank him thank you Mark because he did come back and say that if your insurance does not pay for the testing that gene sight themselves are more uh, focused on trying to get people the psychotropic 
genetic testing than they are being profit-based. And so they have a sliding scale for the prices of their service. Psychotropic genetic testing? I think that's what it's called. I thought psychotropic was like the term that you use for like weed. Okay, well, let me look it up because I don't remember now. Um, But I wrote it in the show notes for whatever episode that was. Um, More dead silence thanks to Rochelle. Hey, yeah, Think of something smart to say. But my point is that they have um, a sliding scale based on income. So if it's something that you want the testing done for, yeah, I'm right. Gene Sight Psychotropic, aha, is a pharma... Okay. Pharmacode... I can't do this while he's in the background. Pharmacogenomic test, which means that it analyzes how your genes may affect medication outcomes. The gene site test, and that's G-E-N-S-I-G-H-T test, analyzes clinically important genetic variations in your DNA. Results can inform your doctor about how you may break down or respond to certain medications commonly prescribed to treat depression, anxiety, ADHD, and other psychiatric conditions. The GeneSight test must be ordered by your doctor or nurse practitioner. The test is a simple cheek swab, um, and it can be taken at home if needed. And over 1.5 million people have taken the test. There's eight clinical studies uh, published in peer-reviewed journals, and this is just the beginning of how we start to look at epigenetics and genes and certain medications, because when these medications were created, they, they didn't give a damn about this. They just blanketly created things. Over 95% of patients pay $330 or less for their gene site test. That's a lot of money. Not, I mean... For certain testing, that's not bad. The MTHFR test alone through a healthcare provider can be up to 700 That's a lot of money. Well, that's on the doctor if they don't figure out, if they don't do the, here we go back to the criteria. If the doctor doesn't do a good job of representing why it's medically necessary, then the insurance is going to see it as cosmetic or informative or educational instead of being clinical. So if you're asking for a test like that, you really have to try and focus on how the results would make a, a big difference to your ability to seek help and um, treatment support from, you know, the results of it versus just asking to run a test to, to know. Have you heard of the term of medical gaslighting? Are we switching subjects? Yes. Because I'm positive by now I have convinced you to get a DNA, uh, this gene site test, so that we know exactly how the medication is going to work with your specific DNA, right? I'm so convinced, Rochelle. <laughs> you, okay. I'm on my way right now. No, but seriously, you're going to do that, hopefully, right? You have something in your teeth. Hmm. Okay, well, have you heard of, thank you, have you heard of medical gaslighting? Nope, this is a first. You know the concept gaslighting? Um, yeah, um, from Dumb and Dumber. What, really? Yeah. How? Yeah, because he bends over and lights a fart on fire. Gaslighting. Okay, I've never seen that movie, but now I definitely will Why won't. do you such a, you've never seen Dumb and Dumber? No. 
Then why do you hate it so much? You can't hate a movie you've never seen. Do you remember where I was in my development as a human when that movie came out? B cup? <laughs> oh. A cup. No, that's not what I'm talking about. Do you remember my kind of like, it doesn't matter. Mormon? Yes. I didn't watch those types of movies. Which is moron with an M. <laughs> I'm aware. No, but Sorry I, if not... we have any Mormon listeners, but I doubt we do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the uh, anyway, I, I don't, you know. Anyways, I was I asking was kidding, about medical gaslighting. It's when your concerns about your health care are being dismissed, they're not heard, and they're being minimized. This is... Oh, are you asking me a question? Well, I asked you if you've heard of medical gaslighting. No, I told you. Farts. Oh, you're being serious. That's the that's what I thought gaslighting was. Oh, well, gaslighting is... Um, I thought it was something from like Johnny Knoxville and the jackass guys. No. No, gaslighting is basically when... when and I might say this incorrectly, but... Um, Gaslighting in psychology tends to refer to like a certain kind of a manipulation where you're tricked into questioning your own, like your own efforts or your own reality. Um, like if you're like, I had a boss who would always tell me, oh, come. Oh. It says right here, gaslighting. To manipulate someone by psychological means into questioning their own sanity. Yeah, so this boss of mine would be like, okay, now anytime you have a problem, come and talk to me. That's what I'm here for. You need to come and talk to me. And I worked remotely before COVID, and I was like, okay, the reason why we're on the phone right now, this video chat, is because I had a problem, and I came and talked to you. But at the end of everything, he would always say that. And I was like, that's how we got here. Like, it really made me question. Am I... And he would tell me my, I had too big of a personality for the, the office, and yet the office was this big, boisterous kind of frat boy environment like he was just trying to minimize me so that I felt insecure and medical gaslighting is when someone is when a doctor does that to a patient with their health care concerns okay that's what that's what the doctor douche did when I said oh my uh, couples therapist said I might be autistic and he's like no 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 you have uh, you display emotion correct that's medical gaslighting um also, probably by the original psychiatrist who diagnosed with ADHD because we were, you did a really good job of saying, okay, well, you know, like, I have this and I have this and I'm struggling here and I'm struggling there. Oh, yeah, well, it's all ADHD. Here, take mine. Go for it. I bring this up because I know what happened to you and it's actually, no, keep it, pretty common um, among certain marginalized groups, especially women and minorities. I'm both of those. <laughs> but um, we talked earlier about how women are still not getting diagnosed at, you know, I would probably accurate rates. Um, and this medical gaslighting is being uncovered as a strong reason. I, I mean, I myself was dismissed over this you know, very visible nerve pain on an MRI and told for a, a year that I have a muscle strain and that a massage therapist doesn't know what they're doing and I have to go to PT who actually made it worse. And it took a year of saying, can we get a scan to her for her to go, oh shit, you have like a significant issue. <laughs> right. Right. 
Not everyone knows what PT is. Like Barnum and Bailey? No, physical therapy. Ah, okay. Um, so I, w- I just wanted to bring this up because it can be difficult to know when gaslighting is happening to you, especially if you assume that your doctor knows best. You know, especially because you like when that doctor told you, oh, no, you display emotion. How did you evaluate his answer? Did you think he was right? Did you think he was wrong? That's one of the reasons I don't trust male doctors. Oh, male doctors. Yeah. Did you have experiences like this with other male doctors before? I don't know. I just have a I just I get a vibe and I prefer female doctors. Do you think that men female clinicians? So a few phrases that could be indicators of medical gaslighting is, oh, it's all in your head. That's normal for your age. I'm sure that's not blank, you know, prior to testing. Um, Oh, it's just a little bit of swelling. I wonder, so women, we, uh, not to um, say this applies to all women because my doctor, my OBGYN was a female, but I know many women who won't treat with female doctors for the same reason because they feel like the female doctor just discounts too much based on their own experience of being a female and they stop listening. That's interesting. That hasn't been my experience with my OBGYN. <laughs> no? Nope. Nope. You're getting everything you need? She does She does everything I need. Mm. You know, one of the best times I felt like um, my experience with the doctor was accurate and the like the the richest possible experience was um, during the pregnancy because you came to every single appointment and there were two of us. Okay. And they say that um, oftentimes having a second person in the room, another voice, another person who's listening and observing and watching, you know, both the patient and the doctor and can ask secondary questions, the doctor is more likely to be on their A-game, you know, like, like to not dismiss you in front of someone else because now there's a witness, meaning that they're just psychologically a little bit more alert and doing their job. Huh. I mean, that makes sense because people don't want to look stupid. Well, and then the other thing is, depending, especially if it's family and they start and the doctor starts grilling you on family history and you sit there and go into a little bit of panic and fight or flight because you're like, ah, he's asking questions. I uh, Suddenly I have bad word recall. The family member can often chime in and go, yes, no, no, you have no history of this. No, we have no family history. Like there's just two people in the room to answer the questions and help the doctor get to like the more the accurate root cause. Yeah, the root cause. And then the second person, usually if the second person's asking questions, the doctor has um at least has a greater chance of like digging in and, and answering some questions instead of just running up because they're so used to having these interactions with the patients and then leaving. You know, so having a second right. person there, some person who is pre- presenting that you know, observational historical data to be considered and can ask all these ranges of questions because they're not the one on the table, you know, it, having a little bit of panic and anxiety. So, you know, and I've asked you before if you'd let me sit in on some of your doctor's appointments. Not that I think you're being gaslighted, but because I want the same. I think you're just nosy. I think that you can tend to gaslight yourself. Like I don't, 
I think you contend. I have never lit gas, one, <laughs> not one time. So that's not the right term. So I don't think you gaslight yourself. I think the better way to say it is you mask. That might be true. So you don't mask with me. And when I'm, I've been in the room with you with other physicians when we, you know, it wasn't all Zoom and we could actually sit together in an office. And I just walked away feeling like you got better care because I could bring up the things that you weren't thinking of and, and help. That's just a bad memory. Yeah, but that, you're not the only one with a bad memory. There's a, there's a thousand reasons to have a bad memory and, you know, only 500 of them are neurodivergence. You know what I mean? Like, you're not the only one with bad memory. We could all be helping each other. I mean, I, I think in terms of medical world, we could all use an advocate. <laughs> I don't think that, I, can't, I, I could use an advocate. Like, I take my sister into the appointments with me when I possibly can because of the same reason. I'm not going to say what I was going to say. Oh, well, now I'm curious. No, you don't want to know. Oh. Move on. Okay. Quickly. So. Before I say something. Okay. Um, if you start to notice, one of the things that came up as I was studying this was being aware of your own nervousness. Because sometimes your own nervousness can make the the clinician more nervous, like, or just irritated. And it can kind of shorten the efficacy of the that's the wrong way to say it, but like... The exchange? Yeah, like anxiety is, you know, everyone responds differently to other people's anxiety. So if you notice yourself foot tapping or finger tapping or clicking a pen or if you're rambling or you're trying to tell like this really in-depth long history that you think is relevant, but they, you know, they might not. Um, these are all cues to be self-aware of. So you can kind of take a breath and go, okay... <laughs> I'm trying to, you know, and re reset and just um, try and come back to your original point so that you don't lose the doctor and inadvertently create a situation where now they're just, you know, not lost, but irritated and running short on time. And so that they they're trying to play catch up the whole time. Right. So I think some people gas. I, I, I read so many things. One one person. um thought that the gaslighting was because they were always behind schedule. Another person thought it was because they didn't want to take the time to explain or they were a poor communicator. Another person, you know, doesn't, didn't know um, anything outside their specialty and they get frustrated when you ask questions outside their specialty. So they just keep trying to like dismiss everything that's peripheral and zone back in on what they know. So that's too many things to try and figure out in a 15 minute appointment. But being aware of your own kind of triggers can help you kind of keep the your time with the doctor the most effective. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, well, I'll, uh, I'll put more on the show notes about it. Um, I think it's a relatively new topic. Um, gaslighting? Medical gaslighting. Oh, because I was just looking it up and apparently it comes from a movie called Gaslight in 1944. The original gaslighting term came from that movie. Does it give you the description? Because I read that and description. Secondarily, it came from Dumb and Dumber. <laughs> Does it give you the description of the actual movie it came from is really interesting. Does it have any synopsis there? It just says gaslighting is a colloquialism loosely defined as making someone question their own reality. The term derives from the title of the Norton, Norton, 
1944 film Gaslight. Which is mostly about a female, if I'm not mistaken. No idea. Um, interesting. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's a term that I oh. think... stars Ingrid Bergman. There's the woman I was thinking of. Cause it um, it's uh, Charles Boy- Boyer, Ingrid Bergman, and Joseph Cotton. Hmm. Directed by Jos- George Cooker? Cooker? I don't know. Some fucking guy named George something. Yeah, the term gaslighting's been around for a while, and it's it's another term, you know, we need to be... Angela Lansbury's in that. What? Okay, now I, have, now I have to go watch it. I'm sure it's black and white. But I bring this up because, you know, we were talking earlier about how challenging it can be to accurately diagnose autism, especially if the clinician... Now, at this point in time, you would hope that you're seeking an evaluation from someone who specializes in autism and isn't going to have this problem. Um, But at this case, you know, you almost need someone who specializes in ADHD and autism because there's so much crossover. Among other things. Well, at the very least, right? And then that always comes with anxiety and depression. But there's so many secondary diagnoses that if you just look at, like, if you zoom in too close and look at something... And just look at the sensory sensitivities or the, you know, the loud noises or the bottle rocket temper or, you know, the difficulty with executive function. Like you could misdiagnose or underdiagnose significantly. So these things all kind of add up. We've talked about a di- differential diagnosis process that's on the clinician or on you to ask, hey, do you use a differential diagnosis process um, that will help assure you're getting like the best I think the I, I hate qualifiers like that, but a di- if your clinician is using a differential diagnosis process, then they're going into the evaluation knowing that there could be you know symptoms that fall in multiple categories, and that they're going to work to get you the best big picture answer. Right. Okay. And then you you know knowing about medical gaslighting on top of it, then you can kind of start to be aware of when you feel like you're being dismissed. And from that point of view, both of those processes would be made better for you, the individual seeking the evaluation, if you've taken the time to really sort through and document or write down kind of all the things you have you struggle with. So you're walking in with a complete picture and you don't have to try and remember it. And you've created what I call like a manual memory, just some notes to facilitate bringing as much information and data into that evaluation with you. Because it's, it's hard to recount your entire history in a three-hour evaluation. I have a bad memory in general, so unless they're asking me questions about movies from my childhood, I have a difficulty trying to remember things that would be pertinent to the conversation when it comes to those evaluations. Well, and didn't you fill out like a really long form and you had to ask your mom a bunch of questions? I don't remember. Maybe. I know I, I, know I had to fill out a lot of paperwork. Yeah, so that in that in that process, you hope that they've covered everything. But at the same time, it's written through a lens of what they know about. So, you know, you still may be experiencing different things that are unique and are outside of the diagnosis that if you have a way of capturing all of those, then it just gives your clinician a chance to serve you with the best medical care possible going back real quick to what you just said about 
you said asking my mom questions. I remember asking her. I don't remember exactly which evaluation was for or if it was just like an evaluation where I was like, here, mom, listen to this and asked her a bunch of questions, just not for fun, but for the sake of trying to get some clarity. And she said, like to the questions that you would have answered yes to or no to, she answered the opposite. And I was like, was I just that great of a masker as a kid? Or was it that she just didn't want to believe that those answers were accurate? That she was giving the, you know, the opposite answer. Well, there's three, right off the bat, I can think of three reasons why she might have answered oppositely. One, you're correct. She didn't want to believe. Two, she might not have paid that close of attention because when you're raising, when it, when it, when you believe you're neurotypical and you're raising a neurotypical child, then you just typically develop and you can take for granted a lot of developmental steps that you don't have to get involved in. That's not true for us in the neurodivergent world. Like we can't take any development for granted. So she might not have even thought to pay attention to it. I'm not dissing her saying she did a bad job. It's just, there's a reason why so many of you in your age group and a decade above and decades below were missed because these are just things you take for granted so one um she might have had some denial two she might not have even known to look for it um and three most of oh well I guess that there's four yes you probably did mask um because you were also working to fit into the society and the group that you you know saw yourself with but also four would be because I hear this story all the time and my clients, w- there's always a moment where life gets too big and that hits and triggers the regression back. And there's usually a minor regression and you kind of stabilize through it and then you kind of get back on your feet and you get back on the horse and then life gets bigger and bigger and bigger again. You have more responsibilities. You start adding kids or, you know, the sound of babies crying or you get a promotion. Life gets to a point where your genetic capacity meets an overwhelming amount of stress and that's it. It, the, you reach that point and where those struggles are in your specific DNA and developmental progress, it shows. So it's entirely possible that as a kid, you didn't have as many early indicators as you did as life got more stressful and more demanding. Life was very stressful and demanding when I was a kid. Yeah, and you weren't drinking alcohol as a 10-year-old. Not that you know of. (laughs) True, but remember that chemical exposure and things like um, sugar and dairy and gluten these I drink cow's milk all the time when I was a kid. Yeah, and the in, the inflammation you pro- your body might have been able to handle the inflammation better when you were a kid and less effectively as you aged, especially as the the chemical additives and preservatives in our food over the decades just got more and more intense. Um, the problem with stress, of course, is the more you feel stressed, the less your body detoxes its inflammation, the less quality sleep you get. The less your body's healing, you know, you can see how it adds up that even if you had a mostly neurotypical childhood, but with a neurodivergent brain chemistry, that you needed a more stressful environment to 
really. No, I had a neurodivergent childhood. I think that. Oh crap! I'm yawning. Now, um, just to clarify, yeah. real fast, I don't believe you started neurotypical. I'm not suggesting that. If you're neurodivergent, you were born that way. Just That's right. Just I know. To I didn't say. You, I didn't say you did. Okay. What I'm saying is that even if it looked neurotypical, it wasn't. No, I agree with that from your stories. I, looking back, I can see these patterns. But from your mom's perspective, she's assuming that you are going to develop as every generation has developed for however many years. Okay. We didn't know then how to look for developmental delays in expressive language or receptive language or how to identify picky eating other than just being a toddler or a teenager. We didn't understand, you know, that aggression and meltdowns is more than just a tantrum. You know, we've gotten smarter. Well, I mean, yeah, like I was talking to someone and they were saying about how, um, like 20 years ago, being diagnosed with autism was very rare. I believe that. And if anything, you would have just been considered, you know, whatever they called it 20 years ago, mentally... Perva- it was pervasive or something something disorder it was pdd back then okay i'm just saying that in general they would have just said you were like you know had some kind of mental disorder of some kind but they wouldn't have specifically said that you were autistic right that's true especially if you were what you're not supposed to say high functioning what would you say if you're on a different end of the spectrum i don't know What's the well, remember what's the politically correct way to You mean like level three? Make that sure to make that distinction. Right. So and I, I don't again I don't know if this is still accurate, but at least when um I understand that it's level one, level two, and level three. So technically you were cons- your doctor told you you were level one or she said you might understand the you might have heard the term high functioning, but even she was calling or Asperger's. It, yeah, label level one. But remember that when something new is coming into a culture, we always start identifying it by the most extreme. So the individuals who probably helped us gain that education and clarity were were probably more on the level three side because their delays or their developmental needs were so much more, you know, readily visible and even then largely misunderstood, right? Massively misunderstood. Right. Um, like I have a cousin who's nonverbal. I, I don't even know how old he is now. I want to say he's probably like in his late twenties, early thirties. Um, he can't have a job. He needs to be cared for. Right. So I'm pretty sure he lives with his dad. Okay. Um, you know, but growing up, we were just like, oh, he's different. Right. But you didn't know what to do. No, but I think that. I think we knew he was autistic, but that was um You didn't have a word for it. That's then. what I that's why when they said I was autistic, I was like, "What?" cuz I'm like, I'm not like that. Yeah, when you went through your big reveal, I don't wear a diaper. You didn't yet. have you didn't have a lot of late diagnosis peers to relate to. Um I've had my eye on our friend from our wedding for a long time. 
um, wondering and suspecting and what listening, not listening, but reading his posts and seeing the patterns and going, Oh, I wonder one day. You sound creepy. No, I'm just, it, no, I know there's certain things that have, when you really, really get in, you know, and you study it kind of like I do, you start to see these patterns and these patterns in adults, especially late diagnosed adults, because you don't ever start this journey by, and sometimes you I don't want to make a, a, a blanket statement. I know this is going to be different for everybody, but most people don't start their journey thinking I'm autistic. They start their their journey thinking I'm struggling or I'm angry or I'm tired of not fitting in or what am I missing? Or, you know, they question themselves and they, and it's more, it's more of this internal frustration and why can't I go to night's sleep? And why doesn't my boss listen to me? It's all these little more intrinsic things, you know, it's not till they add up enough that you can start to see the patterns. Yeah. So that's why I hope they find us because we can help. Who's they? Anyone who is on this journey and doesn't know where to look next. I mean, even if they find us and they listen and they go, yeah, okay, I have some of those things, but that doesn't sound like me, then at least they can, you know, rule things out. The In the world of mental health and medical health, I mean, it's just as effective to start ruling things out as long as they're being ruled out effectively and accurately to, to reduce the list of things, right? So you can kind of narrow down and get the right one. Not everyone gets the right diet doses the first time they start asking questions. Self-identifying with OCD is a really common one. You even did the same thing. Well, because at one point, some doctor I talked to said I probably did have OCD. And then they wanted to medicate me for it. Well, and remember, that goes right back to the beginning of the conversation with that clinician's podcast I was listening to. Um, and she was making that very big point that if you recognize parts of autism that are behaviors and tendencies of other conditions, and that's all you look at, then you could have ended up with that diagnosis and been completely incorrect. Yeah, well, they do say that uh, OCD can be like a, or at least OCD tendencies can be a byproduct of either ADHD or autism. I don't remember which. Both um, for different reasons. Actual OCD is kind of when your brain lies to you and you think you have to like do it over and over and over again in order to be safe or to complete a process or to be able to move on. But autism tends to mirror OCD in the fact that there's rigid and routine behavior and your brain wants to repeat things and it's because repetition is comfort. Um, that's why, you know, autistic kids need a very structured routine. That's why visual schedules are recommended. That's why, you know, expectation building exercises before you start something new, building a frame of reference is important for the ADHD side the OCD behaviors become a coping strategy to deal with the um, poor short-term working memory. If you put your keys in this one spot every single time and you never deviate, then you'll never lose them. Did I tell you, I don't know if, um, I don't think I was ever that bad when I met you, but I used to, with my truck that I used to have, I would I would lock the door and then I would walk back to the door and check the door to make sure it was locked, walk around the back, check the back um, of the truck to make sure the back of the truck was locked and then walk to the passenger side and make sure that that was locked and then I would do the same thing three times in a row before I would leave and so if I was in a hurry 
to go somewhere, like class, when I was going to college, especially or high school, I'd be like, uh, uh-huh. Then I'd have to go around to the back and try to pull that and then go to the other side and try and pull that and then go back to the back, pull that, go to the other side, pull that, and then do that three times. Wow. No. How did you break that? You were still doing some of that when we met, but not to that extent and not three Therapy, times. Therapy, I guess. I don't know. Huh. I mean, that's a, that's a huge struggle, especially when you're running late because now you're just increasing your frustration. Yeah. Huh. It was really annoying because I would feel like I had no control over it. Yeah, and that's... So, but that, so autism... Um, and OCD in that place, they, they share some similar brain chemistry and some, some brain structures when that happens. And so it's, when was this? For a long time. I mean, from, from when I had a car until I was after college. So like 16? 16 or 17. Yeah. If this was part of a really complete... Uh, and available back then, which, you know, haha, it isn't. But um, if this was part of a very thorough um, questionnaire or pre-evaluation or self-evaluation or something, like you would have been able to identify that as, oh, wait, wait, you said you went to a doctor. and When I was a teenager. And did you describe this behavior? Is that what they were going to diagnose the OCD from? Not just from that, because I would do it with other things. I would I would flip light switches off and on. Open and close doors. Both of those questions were on um, when I talked to Declan's pediatrician at 24 months old for his, that, you know, like right before he turned two. They were worried about him opening and closing his car door? No, but the flickering the lights on and off and being obsessed with on and off and opening the doors on and off, like that was one of the early indicators that led to his autism, his initial autism diagnosis. There were several things, but that was one of them. Okay. I figured that little kids just like to flip lights on and off. Some do. Some don't care. But when there's that need to do it every single time and it's repetitive and it's obsessive and it's, you know, like you can't move on until it's been done, that kind of routine and structure and rigidity, um, you know, that's what we're talking about. It's not just like, oh, this is fun, on, on, off. On. Like there's a difference between playtime um, repetition and like you – describe that like you don't have any control over repetition yeah well and if i didn't do it like you know if someone was like oh just walk away (laughs) that's not how it works but that's what people would do because they're like you're weirdo oh that's so uh, we didn't know anything back then i mean i think one of the biggest challenges that we need to remember is that lack of awareness in so many ways and the flipping things we say to each other and the frustrating, annoying like ways that we dismiss each other is Did you say the flipping things we say flippant. Oh, <laughs> they said flipping. <laughs> I was like, just say fucking it's fine. <laughs> the flippant way we behave can that kind of dis- dismissal. I mean, it can just, it can feel so traumatizing and damaging and you once again, just feel completely unseen and, and you know, gaslighted into thinking like oh okay i should just be able to walk away like my reality isn't my reality instead of just having someone validate you 
like okay i see now i remember thinking because you were always did you lock the door did you you know being on my ass for it and sometimes i'd be like doesn't he trust me and then i I realized a long time ago i was like oh it has nothing to do with me because back then to be fair like you didn't even have automatic locks so you had to go around and check everything in order to be sure yeah so i can see like you be you were less that when you upgraded cars because you you could trust the technology to do it that's true so all right well there's been a lot in the i'm I'm imagining this is so much nicer now that he's asleep so much easier to record the second half yeah (laughs) true i feel like i can you said that there's going to be a lot in what in the pop and news minute no not not this week that's i don't have anything oh cool we just okay well not cool i mean i Okay. Yeah, thanks for spoiling. Sorry, everyone. Rochelle just ruined it for everybody. I didn't. Well, we were talking earlier about some of the movies coming out. No, so. I have stuff written for this weekend. Okay. For this coming week. That's right, because this is a bonus episode. This is a bonus episode. Cool. Okay. So everyone gets the bonus. <laughs> okay, you're funny. Not everyone. <laughs> Only a select few. <laughs> if you want to join, go to you youdon'tsoundautistic.com. <laughs> look for Blake. No, 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 no. Don't look for me. Look for Rochelle. <laughs> no. Um no, that's uh I think that's it all we have for this episode, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um we're gonna keep making these till you stop listening. And even then we're gonna keep making them anyway, why not? Probably, yeah. Um I'm Blake. And I'm Rochelle. And we will be back. And I think I need to make some new music for this episode. (laughs) Let's see what it is, shall we?